You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Very excited to have all of you along today. And I'm just excited to do this show because it's one that Kelly and I have been talking about doing for a very long time. One of our big goals, big, big goals on this show is to reduce your anxiety around money. And that is removing the shame, removing the guilt, which we have talked about as being a useless, completely useless emotion. Turn off that negative radio that all of us, or at least far too many of us, have playing in our heads when it comes to taking control of our finances. All of this is to say that we know We know people experience money anxiety. We know women experience money anxiety. But what we didn't know was that members of the LBGTQ community experience more money anxiety. We picked up that piece of knowledge from the 2019 LGBTQ Money Matters survey that one in two adults in this community associate money with anxiety, 52%, whereas just 41% of straight cisgender people do, which by the way is too high a number, but you get my point. After hearing this, along with a number of other troubling findings, we just knew that we had to turn this into a big conversation, which is why I am so happy to be here with Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. They are hosts of the podcast Nancy on WNYC, which partnered with Morning Consult to conduct this research. And along with the research, they have a special series out called Queer Money Matters. We're going to talk about that, too. Kathy, Tobin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Super excited. We're very excited. We learned in the minutes leading up to the show that Kathy likes to geek out on personal finance, so we're going to get to some of that as well. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What inspired you to do this research? I love the data. I love that we get illuminating information about how people behave and react and feel when it comes to their money. So, Tobin, why'd you dive in? Well, it actually pretty organically came out of a conversation we had with a coworker. Uh, His name's David. He's in his early 60s. He's been on our show before talking about his experience living through the HIV-AIDS crisis in New York. He himself is HIV positive. Um, And just offhand one day, he was like, you know, I went to see a financial planner, and we were talking about retirement, and this person was you know, listing off things like, well, if you have a wife, this is how that plays into retirement. If you have kids, that's how that plays into retirement. And he was sitting there being like, none of this applies to me. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of it wasn't even an option for me until pretty recently. So, you know, he was looking at retirement and thinking, well, this, the way it's built is kind of not built for me as a gay man. 
Uh, and that was really fascinating to us, that sort of, well, how is the economy not built for queer people? So we started poking around to test this theory. Um, and as it turns out, there's not a whole lot of data that exists. So in, in putting together this series, we decided to commission the survey to sort of have some numbers to bounce off of. It's a similar complaint that we often hear from single women mm-hmm. that are single people, but at this show, typically single women, that you know, we've got to be careful because it's not a couple, couple, couple world. Single mm-hmm. women are a very fast rising group in the population. And I think a lot of the same issues apply in the queer community. Let me just get the lingo right, make sure I've got it right. Mm-hmm. When you say queer community, who are you addressing? Well, we specifically use it as a shorthand for the entire LGBTQ plus community. Um, it's a little bit harder for me to say that fast. So and, I already and, botched it once, so you are <laughs> off the hook. And also the community keeps growing and changing, and it seems like um, – if, if somebody wants to use the acronym to describe the community, that's totally fine. We're not against that at all. But just for simplicity's sake, I tend to use the word queer, knowing that it has sort of a fraught background, a history. But we're sort of set on reclaiming that word. And so I think both Tobin and I identify as queer. And so we like to say queer community. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I was a little unsure, actually, mm-hmm. that using the word queer was okay or not okay. I feel like sometimes you have to be very careful. Oh, absolutely. And we still hear from listeners of a certain generation who say, I will never be comfortable using that word. Mm -hmm. So I think we are careful to clarify like the spirit in which we use it um, and the inclusivity that we mean when we use the word. Why does this community as a whole, Kathy, experience more money, anxiety than people overall? Because as we sort of discovered in our entire series, at every point, every milestone, financial milestone, it feels like people in the queer community have to find a way around what the general recommendation or guideline or just the entire system, how it's made. So it's just more costly to be a queer person trying to make it in in this economy. And so obviously that would come with anxiety. I feel anxiety about it. In what way is it more costly Um, as a queer person to make it in this society. So, like, if we're talking about career, you have if you're a trans person, you have to go and make sure that your employers are trans-friendly or they have policies that will protect you against discrimination. If you're um, any anybody that's in a queer community um, and looking for work, are you sure that your state has protections for you if you're terminated at a certain point? Um, if we're looking at family planning, just the cost of of starting a family is significantly higher than like the quote unquote traditional way. Um, there's just like there's so many different points that it ends up being more costly. How has your sexuality impacted your personal finances? I think for me, I hadn't really thought about um, how being in a same-sex relationship with another woman could impact me in the long run because um, as two women in, in, in a relationship, we both suffer from the gender pay gap. And then having to start a family, it just, to me, seems like exponentially um, out of my comfort zone in when I want when I think about what I want to spend money on. Yeah. It's just the more I think about it, the more I'm like, 
I think I'm going to stick with adopting a dog. I think it's the easy way to go. (laughs) (laughs) We did a show on egg freezing and Mm. have had a lot of discussions about infertility on this show. And Mm -hmm. it it can get very, very expensive very quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Tobin, how about for you? Has your sexuality, your gender identity played a role in your finances personally? Um, well, I talked a little bit about this on the show at one point, but I used to be a cellist. I was a Me professional too. musician. Seriously? What? Until eighth grade. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's Juilliard trained. Oh, uh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. Okay, I, I take it back. I was never really a cellist. I just, I just carried around a big instrument under my arm. Listen, that counts. That counts. But um, I, back in the day when I was thinking about a career in music— you know, there was sort of this crossroads moment of a lot of the orchestras where you sort of get your foot in the door or, you know, could be your first job might be in areas where you would question, could you be safe as a queer person living there? And this is the thing we heard from a a couple of listeners, that they're in their careers having to make choices where they either go for cities which feel more friendly to them, Mm -hmm. which can tend to be more expensive, or do they follow their career path, which might take them a different direction? So it's sort of this um, personal safety versus your financial future kind of decision that you have to make. Yeah, interesting. And I think women overall can probably relate. I just mm-hmm. published a book called Women with Money, and one of the studies that I cite in the in the book, because people are always harping on women for being risk-averse mm-hmm. when it comes to our money. We, we leave too much in savings. We don't put enough in the market, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But there's this feeling of feeling unsafe in the world. You know, Gallup has done research on, on how safe people feel walking home. And I haven't seen a cut of that research for the queer community, but I bet it exists and you should look for it. Yeah. You both have very different relationships with money, <laughs> or so I've heard. Um, so clue me in. I am terrified of money, or just, I guess I'm not terrified. I just tend to run away from it. I guess that's the same thing as terrified. (laughs) Come close, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of my financial decisions have actually been advised by Kathy. (laughs) You're lucky to have her. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) I hope I'm doing it right. It's all just self-research. You're doing great. So, Kathy, you love personal finance. Tobin, not so much. Why do you feel the way that you feel about money? I think that, uh, number one, I was never good at math. And so I think I correlate finance with numbers, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that scares me. Um, And then I think there's a part of me, you know, like you were saying, finance is emotional, or it ties to sort of things that are down the road. So, you know, if I think about having a kid down the road, that feels scary to me because of the money. And so I think the correlation then is I'm scared of the money involved. (laughs) I get it. Although I just have to say with two kids, Mm -hmm. it is scary for many other reasons. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I love digging into personal finance. I I think for me, it's a way to exercise control over something that um, I don't know, I can get into like really granular details about what I'm spending money on and budgeting in a very specific way and mm-hmm. trying out new ideas to see if something works for me. Um, I started doing it after like a very devastating friendship breakup in college, and I have not turned back since. Love it. So what habits 
do you keep on a regular basis? Um, I write, I entered into my budget app every one of my purchases, and then I reconcile that with my credit card statement at the end of the week. What app do you use? I use Good Budget because it's free. <laughs> free is good. <laughs> free is good. We know we have a lot of listeners who like Mint. We have a lot of listeners who like You Need a Budget. But yes, YNAB is great. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We know many LGBTQ individuals lose their financial safety nets after coming out and that um, 35% of queer folks say that they could rely on their friends and their family before they came out, but only 20 percent mm-hmm. after. Tobin, I know this, when it came to your research, was the most surprising finding for you. Why? Um, I think it's something anecdotally we were aware of, but to see some of the numbers was really um, sort of sobering. And then I, I think part of the philosophy of the series or the idea behind it was to trace how some of these early financial moments can show up later in life. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we asked a question on the survey about, you know, what are your biggest financial worries if you want to have kids? Um, And we saw that 12% of straight-identifying folks said that they were very concerned about support from family if they were to have kids. But that was 21% for queer people. So that was a moment where... That uh, early financial milestone of maybe not being able to depend on your parents anymore shows up in a later financial milestone of, well, I'm starting to have a family. How much can I depend on my own family to support me in that endeavor? Were you surprised that at this point in society, things hadn't changed more? Um, honestly, unfortunately, no. Yeah. That that part didn't surprise me very much. Um I think sometimes in the conversation around queer rights, there's a temptation to fall into, well, gay marriage passed or same-sex marriage passed. Isn't that enough or doesn't that mean that we're done here? Um, And no, there's very much still a lot of work to be done in people's awareness and people's acceptance, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. I want to touch on the milestones and the life stops in this journey and how they're different if you're in the LGBTQ community. But before we get that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money and conversations like these are proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. I, I mentioned at the at the top of the show that Kelly and I have talked for a long time about the need to do a show like this. I haven't been as excited for one of our episodes in a really, really long time. And that's because personal finance, as I like to say, is more personal than finance. And and that means we have to dig into the specific issues that impact specific people. And sometimes they're your issues and sometimes they're not your issues. But I think that there is a lot of value in listening to these conversations, even if you're not a member of this community, because we all know people. We're all surrounded by colleagues and friends. And being more informed on how society is treating other people is an important part of being an enlightened member of society. And so, of course, 
Fidelity is there to help you reach your financial goals. But I I also want to thank them for being there to help us give and get this necessary education. And you can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Let's talk specifically about those milestones. And, And let's start with family planning. You've got an entire episode of the podcast that is dedicated to making babies. Mm -hmm. So take us through what are the pain points when it comes to price tag in terms of having a family if you're a member of the queer community? Yeah, well, you know, I think this is one of those uh, episodes or one of those topics where we want to be clear that issues of perhaps infertility or seeking something like IVF treatment affects a whole bunch of people, not just queer folks. For sure. But we wanted to explore the way in which queer folks have to start from a place of options that tend to be more expensive. So that can range anywhere from adoption to IVF or surrogacy, which can go up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on whether the treatment takes or, you know, how how much you have to um, sort of rely on those options. I think a thing that I didn't anticipate in researching this and doing these stories is how much the hidden legal fees would play into it. Uh, you talked with two women, right? And and one of them decided to carry the child and the other wasn't the biological parents. And mm-hmm. so what what is that? Is that an adoption process? Or how does the non-biological parent get legal protection? Right. So that is a, a process of hiring lawyers and looking into I want, I want to get this right, but I believe it's looking into state laws and looking into yeah. basically the protections that you need to build in with your lawyer. I think it's—isn't it called second parent adoption mm-hmm. or something along those lines? Yeah, it's not even just what is written on the birth certificate of a child because you could have both moms on the birth certificate, but um, that might not actually be legally binding. And so you have to spend the, the money to have a lawyer make sure that you actually have adopted this child. To, for it to be legally yours. We don't see this side on television. No. <laughs> <laughs> How about in careers? I mean, you you mentioned avoiding discrimination in the hiring process. Mm-hmm. That must be very, very difficult. So what are the warning signs? Well, warning signs, I feel like that's something that you have to just do your re- proper research on. We talked to somebody named Josiah who did a lot of research. Josiah is a trans person, and he wanted to work somewhere where, you know, like everybody else, there's no discrimination, there's protections if you need it. And um, he ended up taking a lower paying job because the company that he went to go work for has those protections. And he did that by actually, he kind of interviewed a bunch of companies before he even applied. He talked to their HR departments to ask about what they would do in the event something discriminatory happened to him. And if they couldn't answer those questions, then he wasn't even going to bother applying. Do you think that's a good idea, calling HR before you even apply? I think so. I, I didn't think that I was a thing that I had thought of to do. But if, it, if I was going to be in a place where I, need, I, w- I was concerned about my personal like happiness at work, I think I would do the same thing. I would figure out how strong these policies are at these companies, whether or not they've even thought about it. And if they haven't, then maybe it's not a good idea to move forward. Another life milestone that you talk about is marriage, which you Mm -hmm. say can be costlier for the queer community. Why is that? 
Do you do you want to take the marriage question? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> we sort of split up the episode. Yeah, yeah. So each okay. of us is like the expert in. That's well, totally fine. <laughs> so I would say that marriage itself is not costlier for queer folks. Um, mar- marriage came with a lot of benefits for all the queer people in the U.S. who wanted to get married. But it doesn't solve the problem for folks that either don't want to get married because it's part of your identity to not participate in the institution of marriage. And it's not the end-all be-all of, like, your life goals. Yep. Um, and um, there are some folks that just, even if they want to be, it's unlikely that they'll ever get married. Like, we talked to a person in our series who's asexual or and aromantic, and she just felt like she would love to be able to split the bills with somebody one day, but it's just really unlikely that somebody would build that kind of um, marriage-type relationship with her. And so it's not that marriage is more expensive. It's just that it hasn't really solved everything. So when we think of queer, uh, same-sex marriage as, like, the solution that we're done now in trying to advance queer rights, we're, like, way off mark. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has brought legal protections as far as inheritance and mm-hmm. and benefits. Mm-hmm. But you know what's not clear? Divorce rules. Yeah. And yeah. how and how um, how you split up parental rights. Uh, those things have not—you still need to get a lawyer to figure out the laws for the, for things like that. I've been divorced, too. Always need a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> if I could just add anecdotally another thing that I thought was really interesting in the marriage episode is we talked to a couple people who said that before same-sex marriage became the law of the land, they worked at companies that were more interested in exploring extending benefits to— yes partnerships or not married couples. And then once it passed, those companies were like, well, you got it. So now we don't need to explore Mm. those options. So, you know, they were sort of at a crossroads of, you know, do I now get married because it's the only way to get these benefits or does it still feel like not part of my identity? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of heterosexual couples feel the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I know many people who in their youth largely got married for benefits, Mm -hmm. you know? Some took, some some not so much. Um, <laughs> all right, healthcare, and then I promise, Kathy, I will answer your questions. <laughs> well, so with the healthcare episode, we decided to zone in specifically on transgender patients and the hurdles that they have to sort of get past to get even the most basic healthcare. And I think the thing that we found with that episode is even to just get the most basic level of primary care. You see transgender patients having to travel to find doctors who have been trained or who are sensitive to the care that they need, and that translates to dollars because if you're traveling just to see a doctor, that's out-of-pocket costs that maybe somebody else doesn't have to pay. And then specifically with folks who are seeking to have uh, some kind of transition-related surgery, there's only a couple folks who can do that in the country. And so if you're traveling again to do that, Um, You have to navigate your insurance and whether or not it'll cover it. And then also we heard from a lot of people about the hidden costs of, well, now I'm in another city and I have recovery time, so I have to cover my Airbnb for a month or however long. Right, and it may not just be you. It may be whatever family member has traveled with you to support you through this. I mean, it does. It gets incredibly expensive. Mm Tell us a little bit more about Nancy, and then, Kathy, I will answer all of your personal <laughs> finance questions. You can have your own personal mailbag. Oh, my, oh my God. Wait, I got to think of my questions. I'm going to reorder the questions in my head. Tobin, you tell them about the show. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, 
Nancy is co-hosted by Kathy and myself. Um, Tongue-in-cheek, we sometimes call it the gay this American life. Uh, We do stories and conversations from the queer community for queer people by queer people. We've covered everything from going to prom and drag to uh, the, we travel to uh, Orlando a couple months after the Pulse nightclub shooting. We've talked about the HIV AIDS crisis in New York. We've talked about haircuts and families and marriage and all of the above. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Kathy, you are on. Here's my burning question. And, and let me just set this up for people because Kathy is a, a self-professed personal finance geek. She travels with personal finance books. She yes. reads personal finance. She's a budgeter. So I may be out of my element. I'm just saying. I, I don't I don't know. I just – having worked on this show for the last couple of years, I feel like I've fallen off. Okay. And so I've been trying to, to keep up, but I don't I don't know. My burning question is about retirement funds. Okay. And um, Tobin and I both have a 403B with um, our, our our employer. And I keep try to keep it simple by putting all of my retirement money in. A target date retirement fund. That is a target. Yes, that's the one. In my Roth, though, I have it in VT Sachs. Is that a good idea or am I supposed to di- diversify? You should actually put all of it including what's in your Roth, in the same target date fund or a very similar target date fund. So target date funds are one-stop shop solutions. And the Mm -hmm. reason for this is that a target date fund is going to look at your age. It's going to look at how many years you have until retirement because you picked that fund based on a date in the title when you're likely to retire. Yeah, 50 or something Yeah, I know. It's always like way, way, (laughs) way far away. But it diversified you. Uh based on that assumption, based on the fact that you bought this particular fund. Uh You go out and you buy something totally different. That's going to throw your asset allocation out of whack. Huh, okay. And so even if your Roth is at a different institution, Mm -hmm. you can likely find a very similar fund, if not the same fund, to put your money in, and and that's that's basically how you should do it. And that diversification— is, like, done the right way. Like, I don't know who's doing I guess Vanguard yeah. is doing it. So you should read the Morningstar analysis of your particular fund. You can just go online and mm-hmm. look at Morningstar.com, and they have ratings. And not all target date funds are created equal. Some have higher fees. Some have lower fees. Some are better in terms of performance. And we now have a good amount of history on these funds. So uh-huh. you should just make sure you're in a good one. Okay. Um, but assuming you are, put all your money in it. Okay. If you're gonna go, If you're going to go target date, you got to go all in. I was in a target date, and then I switched over to VT Sachs after reading um, a couple different books about it. I don't know why the community at that point has switched to that, but maybe it's gone back. I don't know. I just know that in terms of looking at how your money is set up for the future, uh-huh. those funds are designed to do it all. You could gotcha. you could take it out of the target date fund and you could look at the percentage that you have in stocks and bonds and cash and what that is, what's appropriate for your age. Mm-hmm. And then you could do it yourself mm-hmm. with a lot of different things. Yeah. But if you're going to go the easy route, if you're going to take, if you're going to go through that door, you want to go all in through that target door. Target date, got it. Yeah. Um. I have a budgeting question. Okay. What? (laughs) 
are you comfortable giving people a number of what they should be spending a lot under? I am more comfortable benchmarking your savings. Oh, okay. How do so you, how do you I do like that? to see you save 15%. And that 15% can include matching dollars that oh, you're getting. We're both doing that. Yeah. Oh, great. So, um, <laughs> so once you're doing that and once you've got some emergency savings, uh-huh. I don't really – I mean, that's the backdoor way to budget. Save mm. first for all of your different goals. And then whatever you've got left, as long as you're not going into debt every single month, as long mm-hmm. as you're not floating it on a credit card, you're fine. Great. Okay. Pet owner question? I don't know if I'll be able to answer <laughs> it. But I do have a dog, so I'll do my best. <laughs> I am really, really afraid that my partner and I, when we get a dog, which we might, we're meeting a dog this evening, so we're very excited. Um, we're really afraid that we're going to end up treating them like a human. Okay. And so I just want to put a cap on how much, <laughs> on you're how gonna much we're going to spend. Fifteen percent. That'll be the best dressed dog in New York. <laughs> Your partner and you should um, look at their estimates about how much it costs to have a dog. And, you know, dogs are expensive. I would absolutely – is this a puppy? A one-year-old rescue. Yeah, I would absolutely look at pet insurance. Okay, great. Because the way to go – um, the way to blow through that budget, you're not going to blow through that budget on toys and chewies, and you know, even if you get it groomed every eight weeks, you're not gonna you're not gonna blow through that budget. Mm. What blows through the budget is if your dog gets cancer and you are willing to go to the ends of the earth for mm-hmm. every possible treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, pet insurance is a good way. If you know you're that kind of person who will spend every last dime on your dog, yeah. then you should buy pet insurance. Gotcha. Um, my final question. I'll, you can jump in. Do you have any Tobin. questions, Tobin? Yeah. I, I do. As somebody who has set up, I think, like a healthy auto deposit into my savings, yep. and that's about the extent of like my financial planning mind, <laughs> can I trust things like or what is it betterment or the sort of like auto investing yeah apps or whatever if it's like my first dipping my toe into the investment world or like building a portfolio yeah you you absolutely can but realize that what betterment or fidelity or vanguard if you're if you're putting an automatic amount of money above and beyond what you're doing in your 403b every mm-hmm. single month into the markets understand you're investing that money for the long term right you're, this this should not be money that you want in 6 months to buy an apartment or go on vacation because if the market dips mm-hmm. that money's in the market right. and you could lose some of it which over the long term, we know historically markets I'm, – I'm drawing a roller coaster, which nobody can see. Markets <laughs> go up and down, and over the long term, they, they tend to go up. And so if this is long-term money and you can invest more outside of your retirement plan, I think that's great, and I think you should absolutely do it. But I do think you should have some liquid savings in case you need it as well, and that should be in a bank. Right, which it is. Good. So – you're doing, doing both. There. You're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, the fifteen percent is to get you to have enough money for retirement at retirement. Mm-hmm. But 
we all have stuff that happens in our lives, right? We all want to buy homes at a certain point, some of us, or we want to have a child, or we want to put that child through college. And so there are times when we're not able to save and invest as much. And so my philosophy has always been during those times when you can do more, you should do more. Mm-hmm. My final question is just how much do we need to have before we can safely put down a deposit for a house? In in cash? Uh, yeah. In the city yeah. or outside the city? Oh, God. You know, <laughs> if it's outside the city, I mean, if you've got 10 to 20 percent, uh-huh. you can get a mortgage. I meant like, I meant like, in, how much do I want to use of my savings to put down into a down payment? Like, is it 50% of my savings I want to put down into, like, the down payment for a house? Or is it, like, can I use – probably not use all of it. But, I wouldn't use all of it. I'd yeah. leave yourself three to six months worth of emergency savings. Okay. And know that – the mortgage on the house and the down payment on the house is just the first expense. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to furnish it. You have to there you have to move. There are mm-hmm. a lot of other expenses that come along with home ownership and mm-hmm. you should just make sure to factor those in. Okay. Ooh, I have a question bouncing off of that. Okay. We're going to keep you for like another hour. No, it's okay. It's all good. <laughs> Kelly, Kelly's okay. <laughs> um if I'm looking at how much I'm spending on rent and what I have in savings and all of that, at what point am I losing money by continuing to rent as opposed to there's, looking there's at— There's calculators for this. Oh, there okay. is. Okay. There are okay, calculators. Great. The losing money by renting calculation, you know, it doesn't always work. I mean, people assume that if you're renting, that's just money that you're throwing away every mm. single month. But what we did see was that during the housing crisis, people lost money on their homes that don't always Mm. go up, although they have historically. So you need to be there for at least five years before you buy anything or know that you're going to be there for at least five years before you buy anything. I think the safest way to look at the idea of owning a house is that if you get to the point where you've paid down the mortgage, what you've really built is this supplemental savings account. Mm. You've you've got this pool of money that you can use to provide shelter wherever you are in your life, right? You could you could just live in that house because you paid it off. You would just have to pay the taxes and the insurance. You could sell it, use the proceeds to move and buy something else. You could sell it and use the income that you make off of that pool of money to rent something else. I think I think looking at real estate as this asset that is going to grow when we all know that it's really expensive to be a homeowner because things break and because furniture. It's it's a it's a complicated calculation that the calculators can't quite handle. Mm, I see. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's good to know. Are we good? I think we're good. All right. I might might send some follow-up emails. (laughs) Yeah, you should. Absolutely. Tobin Lowe, Kathy too. The podcast is Nancy. We are so happy that you were here for this discussion. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for for doing it. And Kelly's with me in the studio. That was a great show, if I do say so myself. (laughs) It really was. And I'm totally fine with all of you hijacking my mailbag. Oh, my goodness. Well, (laughs) we we still have room for a couple of questions. But, I mean, they made me really think about the impact of these life moments 
on the queer community in, in ways that I hadn't thought about it before. I mean, specifically healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that episode on the cost of healthcare for trans individuals and having to search even for a primary care doctor that mm-hmm. you have to travel to. Yep. I guess it should be expected. But mm-hmm. it was a surprise to me. And I'm just so happy that they did this research. Yeah. And mad, too, that there isn't more research on this. But that's what inspired them and sparked them to really pursue this and start the conversation with some data and then working towards solutions. Yeah. So I'm well, so happy a, they came on. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. What you got? Yes. We'll do a couple questions from our mailbag. Our first one from Karina. I am a 27-year-old married, established professional and homeowner. My husband and I have an estimated combined 8000 in debt. We recently got about 5000 in tax returns and we feel split on how to utilize our money. We both have retirement accounts but don't really have much in our savings. He would like to have a cushion and splurge a little and I feel like we should pay our debt off as soon as possible. I understand it's probably best to just pay debt off but a little part of me feels like it would be important to have a cushion since we're planning on starting a family soon and moving into a bigger home in a year or so. I have a 403B with about 20000 in it, and I wonder if we should use the returns or borrow from my 403B to pay it off, or use some of the returns and get a side job and pay it off slowly. Our goal is to be credit card debt-free before babies. I think about this debt every day and want it to go away as soon as possible. So here's what you want to do. First of all, just wipe the idea of borrowing from your 403B off the table. We're not going to do that. You're going to take the $5,000, figure out how small a splurge can make you happy. Because what I don't want is for you to throw the entire thing against the credit card debt, which is pretty much what I'm going to tell you to do, and then decide, ugh, we haven't been out to dinner in two years and we're dying. So figure out a small $100 to $200 splurge, put the rest against the credit card debt, and then go back and figure out why you got this big refund. Because chances are you got it because you're overpaying on taxes throughout the year. Take that money throughout the year. Adjust your withholding so that you're getting more every single time you get paid, and then take that more and automatically route it to the credit card companies, and you'll be out of debt really, really quickly. And once you're out of debt, then route it into savings, Mm. knowing that you've just paid down $5,000 worth of credit card debt. You've got room on your credit cards. If a real emergency hits, you can use the credit cards. I don't want to see you do that, but you could. Great. Now we'll do one from Catherine. I have a question for the mailbag. I'm a 24-year-old teacher, recently married and living with my husband, who is also a teacher, in Beijing. We make a combined income of $94,000 and know close to nothing about how taxes work as expats. I've heard there's an income tax exemption for Americans who live outside the U.S. for 330 days of the year. Do you know anything about filing taxes as an expat or anything about this exemption? How should we go about filing our taxes this year? P.S. I'm a huge fan of the show. I try to soak up as much financial financial wisdom from you all as possible, even in Beijing. We love that. Yes. We love that. Thank you so much, and thank you for writing. Okay, so first of all, expats living outside the U.S. get an automatic two-month filing extension and paying extension. If you're here in the States, you get an extension to file, but you don't get an extension to pay, so that's the difference. You have to file 
but you may not owe tax because of the tax that you pay in China. And basically, you're largely right about this. There is a foreign tax credit that can be applied against income that you pay in your host country. There's also a foreign earned income exclusion. And this year, that allows you to exclude up to $104,000 and change in foreign earned income from U.S. taxes for 2018. And that is where your 330 days comes in. You have to be offshore in your foreign country that many days out of a 365-day period in order to take that exclusion. And you're going to want to count your travel days very, very carefully. There are apps for this so that you don't mess that up. But we love that you listen from across the world. We hope that you're sharing it across the world with other expats and with Chinese women who might decide that they like it as well. And in this week's Thrive, we are taking just a sec to talk about the failure to launch effect. In other words, when parents are financially supporting their adult kids for much longer than they thought they'd be. Ordinarily, I am one of the first people to admit that sometimes our grown kids just need a little boost, and it's perfectly okay, in some cases even encouraged, to offer that help. But I am also one of the first people to say that you should try to put yourself first when it comes to saving for retirement. The problem is that many of us are not able to do both. Today, more than three-quarters of parents are helping their early adult children and, and the definition of early adult is 18 to 35 financially. And the amount they're giving them is double what they're putting toward their own retirement, according to a report from Merrill Lynch and AgeWave. And that is a problem. Helping your kids, that's good. But sacrificing your own financial security, not so good. Thankfully, the bank of mom and dad doesn't have to be open forever. And if you're putting your financial future at risk, you should start making a plan to close it down sooner rather than later. There are a lot of other non-monetary ways to show your kids love. So don't be afraid to let them know that emotional support is the sort you'd prefer to be providing for them from now on. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Kathy and Tobin for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon. 